iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Um, tonight, we're very pleased to have Joel and Ethan Cohen uh, returning to our store, I believe for the third time, to talk about their latest project, A Serious Man. Set in 1967, A Serious Man tells the story of Larry Gopnik, a physics professor who finds himself struggling for equilibrium and searching for clarity. Uh, before we bring our guests out tonight, we're going to show you the trailer. Please enjoy. Please, I need help. I've had marital problems. Honey, I think it's time that we start talking about a divorce. Larry, we're gonna be fine. <coughs> Professional, you name it. Larry, we've received a number of letters denigrating you and uh, urging us not to grant you tenure. I need help. We're gonna be fine. I've tried to be a serious man. We're gonna be fine. I've tried to do right, be a member of the community. We're gonna be fine. Please, just tell him I need help. Please. We're gonna be fine. I need help. We're gonna be fine. is busy. He didn't look busy. He's thinking. Don't you want somebody to love? Don't you need somebody to love? Wouldn't you love somebody to love? You better find somebody to Moderating tonight's special event from Entertainment Weekly is Dave Carger. At this time, please join me in welcoming Joel and Ethan Cohen and Dave Carger. Hello, everybody. I'm so happy to be here for my third Meet the Filmmaker talk. And I have to say, as the guy who writes about the Oscars for Entertainment Weekly and writes the Oscar Watch blog for EW.com, I feel like the phrase Joel and Ethan Cohen is something that I'm so used to typing. It's almost second nature to me as much as my own name. Uh, for those of you who have lost count, these guys have four Oscars. They won for original screenplay for Fargo in 97 and also uh, won for best picture, best director and adapted screenplay for No Country for Old Men. So it's a pleasure to be here uh, talking with the two of you. Thanks. Thanks. Now, for people who don't know, uh, this film takes place in the 60s in Minnesota. You guys grew up in the 60s in Minnesota. The main character is a, kind of a harried college professor. Your father was a college professor. Many people are saying this is the most personal film that the two of you have, have ever made. Did you specifically set out when you were thinking of your next project to, work, to write something that was personal, or did it just kind of happen organically? Uh, not to write something personal per se, no. Although we did, I mean, what kind of got us going was the setting. We, we did, it did kind of start with the idea of doing something that was set in a, 
you know, Jewish community, suburban, uh, middle class, Midwestern Jewish community like the one that we grew up in and, and the, to set it in 1967, which is when we were kids. So in that respect, it's very much consciously harks back to where, you know, our childhoods. But in terms of the story, it's not uh, personal or autobiographical or doesn't have anything to do. The, the events in the movie aren't anything except a story. Did you think to yourself, oh, great, but we're going to be opening ourselves up to a different line of questioning from people in the media who are going to want to know what is autobiographical and what is not? Well, yeah, I think we were aware that that would be an, uh, you know, an area of interest for people who saw the movie just because, um, as Ethan said, it does, um, the context of the movie, the, the community and the, 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 and the, the place um, are very much connected to us. Um, and we knew that actually it won't mean anything to you who haven't seen the movie yet but all the journalists who have seen the movie and asked us about it the one question we always get is were you stoned at your bar mitzvah you just stole my question so what's the answer no <laughs> no It's a very ensemble cast that you guys put together, and there are some names that people will recognize, like Adam Arkin and Richard Kind, and people who know New York theater will know your leading actor, Michael Stuhlbarg. Uh, but it's interesting, it, when, you, when you guys do have the opening credits, uh, all of the actors' names kind of come at you like a barrage of names that you've never seen before. And, a barrage uh, I, of very Jewy names, yeah. <laughs> And I thought to myself, these are two guys who were coming off their last film, which had George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Tilda Swinton, Francis McDormand in it. Do you, are you guys just sick of movie stars at this point? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, we're not sick of movie stars, but it was certainly a, um, a conscious decision from the outset to populate this movie with actors that um, were not familiar to movie audiences. Um, that, in a way, it was, in certain ways, it's, it's just the opposite of, as you said, of the movie that immediately preceded it, um, where that story, in our minds anyway, seemed to want and benefit from those sort of high-profile actors. It's, it helped in, you know, it, it helped in some way, it was part of the fun of watching the, of the story, that particular story, we thought. Um, and this was just the opposite, where we felt that the less um, the audience knows about who these people are, the easier it will be for them to enter this story, the more sort of specific it can be, the more regionally sort of authentic it can feel if, uh, if the actors are not well known. Um, you're right, Michael Stuhlbarg, I mean, if you live in New York, you go to a lot of theater, people know him, but outside of that, not really. So how does a, a movie set with no famous people differ from a movie set with all famous people? Smaller the trailers? The actual set? Yeah. Actually, not much at all. Not much at all. I, you know, the, the kind of big movie stars that we've been lucky enough to work with, I, you know, 
they still think of them, you know, they're actors, it's, so the, it's the same. The only difference is the kind of pain in the ass paparazzi thing, which you either do or don't have to deal with. And the trailers are a little smaller. Um, I want to ask you a specific question about Michael Stuhlbarb. He has so many completely priceless facial expressions in his performance at, that are really fun to look at. And I, my question to you guys was how much, if at all, did you kind of direct him specifically with, with his facial expressions, or was that just him doing his own thing? No, no, that's just, that's Michael doing his thing. Um, uh, no, I mean, we tend to, on the set, we tend to, um, it's not a lot of, a lot of really specific direction that way, especially in terms of those things that you're mentioning. I mean, just sort of what's going across an actor's face at any given moment. I mean, direction tends to be more technical in terms of, I know as mundane as it may sound, you know, uh, editing certain things or the speed at which certain things happen or, or just an alternate sort of way of thinking about um, what's going on in the moment or the line. I mean, they're really specific little things and only, and even then only fairly occasional. I mean, we feel that once the movie is cast, it's really the, um, you know, it's in the actor's hands. And um, while the script doesn't change much uh, between, you know, the writing and the actual production, um, once the actor's on the set and doing whatever they're doing, it's, it's their, their, their work that's up there. There's several moments in his performance that really reminded me of uh, the Bill Macy character and the Bill Macy performance in Fargo. There's a lot of Michael's really funny scenes involve exasperated phone calls that he's making because the people from the Columbia House Record Company are trying to get money from him that he owes. And it really reminded me of the Bill Macy scenes in the car dealership where the boss is trying to account for the missing cars. And it's fun to watch him get increasingly exasperated. There's even one line where uh, the authorities come, I guess, in the middle of Shiva. And he says, you know, we're sitting Shiva here. And even that, even that line reminded me of, of Bill Macy's performance. Did that, any, any of that strike you at all when you were cutting the film? Uh, no, but hearing well, it, I kind of get the connection, yes. Well, there, there is one interesting thing that we were certainly aware of, which was that the, the, one of the scenes that you mentioned, which is when, in this movie, A Serious Man, when Michael is called by somebody from the Columbia Record Club and has to deal with that person who is essentially dunning him over the telephone, the person who's playing the character at the other, on the other end of the phone, an actor named David Warren Keith, uh, is the same actor who played the person who was dunning Bill Macy in Fargo. You're kidding. For the, um, uh, for the uh, serial numbers, asking him for the serial numbers of the cars um, in that scene that you also mentioned. So... Um, so yeah, in that respect, we were sort of aware of some kind of uh, parallel thing happening. Have, does he have a face for radio, or have you ever given him a, an on, an on camera? No, he's part? been in. He was in Raising Arizona and The Big Lebowski. He was the uh, the funeral home director in The Big Lebowski. Um, 
I, it's been a, a, about six weeks since I saw this film, but I also seem to recall several close-ups of, uh, of people's ears in the film, it, particularly with hair coming out of, of the ears. Yeah. Well, there are old Jews in the movie. Yeah. Is, that, is that something that you guys come up with, you're making a shot list, or are you just on the set thinking, hey, this would be fun? No, the, in that case, we knew, you know, the ear thing, uh, again, it, uh, the ear thing was clearly important uh, for a number of reasons. But, but first of all, because of the radio thing, it takes place in 67. The kid in the movie has a transistor radio with the familiar to some of us who remember the little white cord connecting to the little plastic ear plug, and it kind of plays a substantial part in the movie. Um, and just the whole, the way that worked with the doctor's examination at the beginning of the movie, that was kind of clear early on. We wanted to make something of that. So, no, that was not an on-the-set inspiration. That was more of a designed kind of thing. Yeah, it was something we thought about in advance. So would you guys say, in general, every shot in, all, in your films has a specific purpose to it? I mean, I think to... Back to No Country, the, that fascinating shot of the, I believe, I don't know if it's like a, a peanut wrapper or a sunflower seed wrapper that, get, that gets put on the counter with Javier Bardem in the gas station, and you see it kind of unraveling. I mean, are those all things, I guess I have a similar question, is that something that was pre-thought, was in the script, and was there for a specific purpose? Or Yeah, sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not. In, ca in that case, that was, and you know, and what was it? What was what? What was the, the purpose? It's such a cool shot. Oh, it just seemed, I don't know, Javier's character seems kind of ominous and something about just the specificity and the whole, you, you know, it kind of puts you right there somehow. Seemed to help the ominousness of the thing. The, uh, the, the, the kids, there's two kids in, in uh, a serious... <laughs> There's two kids in a serious man, an older teenage girl and, and then the younger boy who like, could be you and, as a kid. I mean, it's kind of uncanny, the resemblance. I, I want to show uh, clip number two, and then I have a question about them. Dad, you get Channel 4 now, but not Channel 7. Arthur, how could you do that to this family? On size? It's hardly a crime. I mean, nobody got hurt. That doesn't make it right. He won a lot of money, Dad. The Mentaculous really works. You knew about it? Well... They must have faked me out. They knew I could just go on winning, so they blackballed me, and now... What did you do with the money you won? What's going on? Well, I didn't want it, and Danny said that he could use it. That is so unfair! What are you... I'll tell you what's unfair. What's unfair is them not letting me play in their card game. Why give him the money? You know what he spends it on? I know about the records. Records? You think he buys records from Mike Fagel? Well, he's not saving up for a nose job. What a brat! What? Nobody in this house is getting a nose job. You got that? Ah. Danny, you're not excused. We're still talking. What was this card game, Arthur? Some boys put together a private game. I think that they're Italian. Danny, what's going on? <laughs> basically what's going on here is that this poor college professor whose wife is basically leaving him 
his tenure is really up in the air whether it's going to happen or not. And all the kids care about, the, the girl only cares about being able to wash her hair in the bathroom and the uncle's taking up all the time in the bathroom. And all the boy cares about is that the antenna on top of the house doesn't work so he can't watch F Troop. So I, I guess you've, you've gotten the question whether you were actually stoned at your bar mitzvah, but were you guys as insensitive as children as these kids are in the film? Oh, well, sure. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but that seemed like it was something, you know, you, you want the domestic thing. Kids are, uh, if it's going to be real, the kids don't care about the adult shit. You know, they have their own stuff. They, he wants to watch F Troop. Yeah. Um, the song Somebody to Love by Jefferson Airplane plays, it's almost a character in this film. I mean, it's, it's very prominent in the trailer. It's extremely prominent in the film. Was that something that you guys just landed on that as the song you wanted to use early on, or did you have like a listening session where you went through a whole bunch of iconic songs from the time? No, I, that was there kind of from the beginning. I'm not really quite sure h how or why, but um, it was uh, it was a starting point pretty early on, and then it, it sort of became more important as as the script developed. Um, and it, it, I think initially it just seemed to us, A, that there was something we wanted that was familiar. It had the sort of right, so specifically 1967, that song. It had the right uh, vibe for that period and so evocative of that specific part of the 60s. Um, uh, so, yeah, it was... It was uh, you're right. I mean, it, it does play a big part in the movie, but uh, it was there pretty, pretty, pretty much from the beginning. And I think one of the reasons why people are calling this your most personal film, I can't recall a film that you guys have made that explores Judaism and Jewish mysticism. I mean, there's, there's these great parables. There's a great parable that kind of starts the film off. It's entirely in Yiddish, and there's this amazing uh, fable that's told halfway through the film involving... Uh, Hebrew characters that are engraved on the back of this guy's teeth, naturally. I mean, it's fascinating. Now that people have seen the film, are you getting different reactions from people who, who are Jewish and people who are not? Do you think it's a different experience for a Jewish viewer or a, a goy? It is and it isn't. Um, at least in terms of the reaction so far, the limited reaction so far. Um, I mean, there isn't a way that, you know, people who are familiar with the culture specifically, I think, you know, recognize certain things in it. And that's a sort of felicit that's something felicitous about the movie. That's something nice about the movie. Um, on the other hand, you know, people like seeing movies about foreign and exotic cultures. And, uh, um, and that's another kind of I think pleasure you can get from it, hopefully. Um, and it, 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 it's certainly been our experience so far that we've gotten reactions in in both regards. You know, so you know, good reaction in both re regards. So um, yeah, is it a different experience? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, it does it. Is it sort of is a is a is it sort of does it seem limited to one or another? Not exactly. No. I can only imagine when you guys were doing interviews and appearances for No Country, how many people wanted to know about the final scene, Tommy Lee Jones talking about the dreams that he had um, to his wife. And 
I feel like with the last shot, I don't want to give anything away and I'm not going to, but the last shot of this film is also really interesting and mysterious. Um, and I'm not going to ask you to explain what it means because I don't want you to really talk too explicitly about it. But in a general sense, what were you kind of going for with the, the last few seconds of this film? Well, um, yeah. <laughs> right, I understand making the connection that No Country for Old Men obviously was an adaptation. It wasn't our ending. It was Cormac McCarthy's. It was given to us. But part of what appealed to us about it was that it feels... I don't know, perfect in its way, but not resolved, certainly not resolved in that, in that feeling that things have been not perfectly resolved, but are still ending in a satisfying way. We like that in Cormac McCarthy's book, and we just tried to render it in the movie, and I hope it's nice that you compare this movie to that, because um, that's... Right, that feeling is a hope for this as well, although it's a different, yeah, it's hard to talk about without talking about, but. It's, you know, endings are very tricky, and, uh, um, and sometimes the ones that are most conventionally wrapping everything up or disposing of the narrative sort of in a conventional way are the most, unsatisfying in a way, even though you don't, you, you recognize it immediately as an ending, and in that respect you don't feel, you know, you feel some kind of resolution in the experience of watching or reading or whatever it happens to be. At the same time, they're often not exciting. The endings themselves are dull, you know? And, um, um, I mean, that was one of the things about Cormac's Cormac McCarthy book that we found really extraordinary, you know, that there, there was it something is, very exciting about the way he ended that. And it is funny, though, that that ends with like five minutes of a talking head, and this yeah. is not that. No. <laughs> no. I'm also curious, off the subject, if, if, if I'm correct on the numbers, for your first ten or so films, um, Joel, you were credited as the director, Ethan, you were credited as the producer, and the two of you shared credit on screenplay, and then starting with the Lady Killers, I believe it was, that's when you kind of shifted and you're both the co-directors. As I understand it, all along you've kind of both been co-directors and co-producers. So I understand why starting with the Lady Killers you would change it this way. My question is why was it ever the other way? I think it was intolerable, but that was the first one. I'm not sure. But um, the reason, I think it began out of some misguided idea that we had um, early on. We were trying, when we first started, we started, the first movie we did was done completely independently and outside of not only the studio system, but any, you know, recognized <laughs> production entity at all. Um, that's Blood that, Simple. Blood Simple. And, um, and so we had complete sort of control over the whole thing. And I, I think when we sort of went into the business part of it, we were, we felt a little bit, um, we felt we had to sort of protect that and the easiest way of doing it might be to say director producer so that we weren't sort of given a producer who would have any real control over the movie that the, the producer spot is already taken in a way I think it was a, it was misguided in a way but uh, um, anyway it got it was institutionalized for a while um, 
And then at a certain point, you know, partly because it was so obviously not the way it was, it had worked on any of the movies that, um, um, that we just kind of, um, and also around the time, well, around the time I think we went into the Director's Guild, or it may have been a movie or two afterwards that it got changed. Before I open up to the audience, I just, the Oscar geek in me has to ask you guys one question. It's pretty well known that you guys edit your own films under the, the name Roderick Janes, and even in the press materials for this movie, there's like a fake bio for Roderick Janes that he's, you know, started off minding the tea card at Shepperton Studios in the 1930s in the UK and has the largest collection of Margaret Thatcher nudes in the world or something like that. But, the, you, but Roderick Janes was actually nominated for No Country for, for editing, but he lost. So what would have happened if, if he had won? Would you guys have gone up on stage, or would, or would it have been this very weird Roderick Janes isn't here to accept the award thing? Yeah, I remember the Academy asked us, what if Mr. Janes wins? What's, uh, what do we do? I remember they initiated a discussion, and I can't remember how it ended. Um, they don't let anyone accept by proxy anymore since the Marlon Brando, Sashin Littlefeather thing. Um, I can't. We actually had a plan, and I can't remember what it was. Do you? Do you remember? Yeah, Joel? he was also nominated for Fargo, um, and that's when the, it first became an issue because we had asked if somebody else could go up and pick it up, pick it up, for, and they, that's the point which they said no uh, initially. Um, I, um, I don't. I, I can't. No, I don't know. I, we we weren't planning if it if it had happened. I think we were just gonna. You know, no, he's not here. <laughs> what does the audience want to know? There are some microphones, so if you have a question, raise your hand and they'll bring a mic over to you. Hi. Um, I was wondering if you could tell me, am I a complete idiot or is um, the Big Lebowski... I don't like you well enough. <laughs> is the Big Lebowski like a, a, an homage to Hitchcock's North by Northwest? North by Northwest. No. No. You know, it kind of is an homage. I mean, consciously, I, I very much to, you know, we were thinking, well, let's do a Raymond Chandler story. Um, so that, yes. Uh, North by Northwest, no. Why, why do you say that? Um, well, first I noticed there's the tracing paper shot, which oh, is exactly yeah. like, but then that yeah. got me thinking about North by Northwest in general. And they're kind of like just the, if you were to summarize both the plots, like in one or two sentences, they seem, they're like the same. Where there's someone's identity is mistaken. And so, like, all this crazy hilarity ensues. Yeah, I guess you're right. It is an homage to North by Northwest. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm a local filmmaker, and uh, a lot of times I'm inspired by New York, you know, in my work. And as New Yorkers, I was wondering what your favorite parts of New York are and how they inspire you. We've, we've only made one movie here in the city, and that movie was supposed to be in Washington, set in Washington, D.C. Um, that was Burn After Reading, which we shot almost entirely in New York. Um, so um, it's funny. We did do one other movie that was supposed to be in New York, but we shot in Wilmington, North Carolina, and that was The Hudsucker Proxy. Um, you know, we're both 
longtime New Yorkers have been here for decades, but it's just not a city we've ended up working in very much when we're when we're working. Great city to work in, but it just hasn't the stories haven't you know worked out that way. I um I'm an aspiring filmmaker from Eden Prairie, Minnesota, and I was just wondering uh what some of your biggest challenges were breaking through in an industry like this coming from Minnesota? Well, there's, certainly there are a lot of problems, but I don't think any of them are peculiar to having come from Minnesota. Um, it's, I don't know, it's a legitimate question and one that, you know, people ask. And it's always impossible to answer because everybody figures out how to get into the business in a different way, it seems. Um. Also, our experience of when we sort of managed to insinuate ourselves into the business is pretty ancient at this point, and things change so fast in terms of, you know, how the business works. I, I'm not even sure that, that um, you know, you could look at us as use our model as anything useful. I mean, we... we, we uh, the way we started was basically we made a movie, as, a, as I mentioned before, that was not really in any way connected. We managed to find the financing for a movie outside of the industry um, through a limited partnership. We formed a limited partnership in uh, like the way you know a lot of theater is financed and, and found investors in it. And It was a very, very small budget movie. And at the time, it was a model that a lot of sort of independent filmmakers were using to finance, you know, both everything from, you know, all kinds of independent films, horror films, everything, you know. Um, so that's what we did. But, you know, I'm not sure now what the, if the there's no cookbook, you know, there's no recipe for it. It's, it's uh, as Ethan was saying, it's just everyone finds their way in a different way. Hi. Um, so you guys have made such a wide range of like different types of films, and I was just wondering, what's next? Uh, well, hopefully, uh, although it's not set yet, we're we're hoping to do an adaptation of True Grit, um, which is uh, probably familiar to more people as a movie. Which uh, uh, I don't know. Yeah, we were enthusiastic about the book, the novel. Uh, written by a guy named Charles Portis, and we wanted to, uh, I don't know, it just seemed like good material for a movie. Hopefully we'll be doing that in the spring, but it's not set yet. Uh, why do you edit your own films, and how did that start? Joel's background is, well, actually, it's how he got into the movie business even before we raised the money for our first movie. Um, he was a, an assistant editor and, and, uh, and an editor in a lot of low-budget horror movies. So he's him through training, and then, uh, I don't know, he enlisted me. Why do we do it? Because it's such a, you know, it's part of making the movie. It's part of the process. Um, it's even, it's just part of how you think about, how you think about doing the movie, you know, even from writing the stage of writing the script, you think about how the scene is going to be covered. Uh, in a way, you're kind of thinking about how the movie is going to be put together at the end from the beginning of thinking about the whole process, thinking about what you're doing. 
it's just kind of, uh, you know, the kind of natural progression of getting it, getting the movie done. I grew up in Jamestown, North Dakota, which is 100 miles west of Fargo. And there were two things that I want to mention. It's beautiful how you captured the real desolateness of North Dakota. Because that's part of what it is. Um, just as like someone like a place like New York is so packed with people, there it's sparse and cold, and people can be that way, but there's a balance, and they're also warm. But then the other piece was um, when Fargo happened, the movie happened, you put a part of the world on the map that I would never, could never explain where I came from. And because I would say more that I spent, I'm from Minnesota. But um, once I, um, people saw the movie, I could tell them, well, I grew up 100 miles west of Fargo, but if you saw the movie, it's a lot further west. Thank you. Hey, so since you both are siblings and you do work together, I was wondering if you guys argue a lot, and if you do, who usually wins the arguments? Um, no. Uh, no, we don't argue a lot. I, it's a question that fascinates people. Um, but no, we don't. I, you know, actually, we work with a bunch of, uh, a lot of other people uh, and have, in the case of some of them, for like 20, 25 years, is almost as long as, one of whom is in the room, uh, almost as long as we've been working with each other. And we don't argue with them either. It's just kind of... Uh, Nah, we're not confrontational types, and I, I don't know. If there was a lot of friction between us, we probably wouldn't uh, have arrived at working together anyway. So, no. Do you guys hang out a lot? Like, if, if you're not working on something or doing media, do you, how often do you have dinner together when you're not working? Very seldom. How, how close do you live to each other? Well, we both live in Manhattan. Um, well, you know, it's, that's another it's sort of, uh, I guess it's sort of interesting. We spend all day together, so working, so it's rare that we go, let's go have dinner together, you know, because we've, and we know we're going to see each other the next morning. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it's just, actually in that respect, we may have, it's possible we'd have dinner together more frequently if we didn't work together. I don't know. It's, um. You know, it's kind of, it seems natural once it's sort of, you think about it, but yeah. What else? Right here. Uh, you guys have really distinctive characters. How, how do you go about uh, designing them or figure out how they're going to be? <laughs> Pardon me? You have really distinctive characters. How do you develop them when you go into the script? It's, 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 it's a little difficult to sort of parse or distinguish that process from just how you sort of come up with a story or, um, you know, uh, it's all, I mean, sometimes one thing leads and sometimes another thing leads. Sometimes a plot suggests characters, sometimes characters suggest a plot. Sometimes a place suggests a character, and that leads to a story. Um, there really, again, it's it's probably as different as there are different, you know, movies. The sort of 
you know what comes first and what what's the engine that's doing the what's what's driving the thing um or at least what's initiating the sort of process uh but you know i mean again it, it's it's true in connection with this movie and it's been something that's been remarked uh, you know becomes the subject of a lot of these sort of discussions which is it's it's very difficult to do any of that for us outside of a pretty specific context, you know, place or setting or, you know, it, that all helps inform the story and the characters and... Um, so like with the Richard Kind character in Serious Man, it's not, like, it's not like before you guys really got into the script you had characteristics written down, you know, here's the character, Uncle Arthur, that's his name, right? He has a sebaceous cyst that needs to be drained every week or, you know, is writing down nonsensical physics equations in his book. I mean, that well, did, doesn't work that way, right? Uh, he's sort of a funny case, actually, that character, um, because it's a, that character is a specifically a uh, combination of a number of real people, and sometimes that happens. He's, you know, and um, uh, and characteristics, and those were sort of taken from. It was thinking about one particular person, and then giving him this grafting onto him, and and what he was like, this 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 idea that he was working on this particular thing, which is in the movies called the Mentaculus which actually comes from somebody else. Um, so um, that's, a, that's a funny example that you kind of pulled out of the air. But, you know, we knew, we knew when we, had, we thought, well, he should have a sebaceous cyst on the back of his neck that he has to drain all the time. We knew we were really onto something as a character. <laughs> it's kind of gross, actually. Well, hi. Um, I'm not a film student. I, I used to be a writer and stuff like that, but... Um, that's a, um, I wanted to ask you what are the, the like the criteria that that is used when you decide to make a film. Like, what is what is the like when you look into that material? What is it like? Okay, this is the film I want to make, or this is the film we're gonna make, and stuff like that. Because your your movies are so different and everything like that. I just wanted to know like what inspires you and stuff like that. You know. Oh, I see. Well, I I, I actually. I misunderstood your question at first. I was going to say we do, you know, sometimes you chase up blind alleys and you think about something for a while and then realize this isn't working and you put it aside or you th you put it away. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, but it's really, uh, boy, it's hard to answer because it's so nebulous, you know. We start talking about hypothetically a story set here or there or about this kind of person or whatever. And, you know, the, that conversation will either peter out or something about it will excite both of us enough that we pursue it. And, uh, you know, what that something is, I wouldn't be, know how to begin to define it. And maybe it's different in each case, but just whatever is stimulating enough to the two of us to keep the conversation going and to the point where we actually write it and, you know, get all the way through writing the script, then okay, that impetus did its did the thing. Yeah, sometimes, I mean, you talk about a character or a situation for quite a while. I mean, you know, months or over a course of, you know, 
a year or two and just say, well, that's kind of an interesting thing that maybe we should think about could, could be a story or an interesting movie. And again, sometimes they just fall away and sometimes you keep coming back and thinking, you know, having that liking to think about that situation and it gets a little momentum and you go, let's, let's try and really think, think this one through all the way through a screenplay. So, so when you guys are writing, is it two of you are sitting at the same computer? Is one person over someone's shoulder? Does one of you take a pass at a scene and then give it to the other? It's generally me over Ethan's shoulder. Or as he was asked once about adapting a novel, he said, I, you know, what it's like to collaborate on adapting a novel. He said, uh, Joel holds the spine of the book open while I type it into the computer. <laughs> That's why actually hardcovers are better because they don't, they'll stay. Uh, I actually have a question. I noticed in a, a video, um, or maybe it was a photo of your work area, you keep a bell on your desktop. And I've had one as part of my workspace for the longest time. And when I saw that, I was like, wait, wait, why do they have it? Do they order sandwiches? So <laughs> what do you guys do with your bell? It's an editing thing. That's very interesting. Uh, it has to do with the way um, we cut, and specifically how we cut on um, computers, and specifically on, on uh, actually on Final Cut Pro. Because when we started doing, we used to cut on, and this is the way I was taught, on a flatbed editing machine and an upright moviola. That just shows how far back we go. Um, the upright moviola, Ethan used to work on the upright marking takes. So he would choose, we'd choose, he would choose the take, mark it in and in and out. I would assemble it on the cam or the Steenbeck. And we cut many films that way. It was a very smooth system. And we started wanting to work in computers. What was important to us was to find a way of doing it that was preserved our, the nature technical nature of the collaboration and um, and actually it was uh, Apple Final Cut Pro that sort of came up with this analog, analog where you know we have these computers that are sort of connected and the takes are marked up electronically on one by Ethan at his workstation and then essentially sent the data is sent to me and I'm assembling it and sort of refining the cuts on the timeline on another computer. But because we sort of work on a sort of corner, you know, the way that I know that takes have been sent over is that Ethan hits a, a, a hotel bellman's bell on top of his, yeah, that thing. And I, I know that it's come over to this computer screen in the middle. So that's why we have it. It's pretty important, really. We'd probably be completely screwed up without it. The wonders of technology. Well, thank you all for the questions. And Joel and Ethan, thank you for being here. Have a good night, everybody.